Well, we certainly appreciate our praise team and the good job that they do Sunday by Sunday. It's good to have our pianist back after a month of <coughs> going to Disney World every day. Dirty work, but somebody has to do it. I appreciate you letting me be here today. For those of you who might be visitors, I am not, uh, I am the fill-in pastor, I'm the substitute preacher. They're looking for a real one, and uh, hopefully the Lord will provide uh, for this good church a pastor in the not-too-distant future. But while I'm here for the next two or three Sundays, I believe the Lord has laid on my heart a, a message relative to the church. We're living in times that are different than they were 50 years ago. And I believe the church of the living God should always be relevant. The message of Christ is relevant. Message, the message is always the same. Christ died for our sin, according to the scripture. Now, music changes. Music is generational. And the music of this generation is different than maybe uh, 50 years ago. So I want you to turn to the book of Acts. And I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. But as a background, I'm going to read a verse or two from Luke. And I apologize that my voice is a little raspy today, but uh, <clears throat> we just have to deal with it. In the book of Luke, by the way, the, the author is Luke. Luke was a physician, and it's not surprising that he referred to things as being investigated, and he wrote down in an orderly fashion because that's what physicians do. But in the third verse of the first chapter of the book of Luke, we have these words from the Holy Spirit. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seems good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. <clears throat> so he is the author of Luke. And now in the book of Acts, and of course, Luke is the author of the book of Acts. He says in verse 1, In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all the things that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day that he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles that he had chosen. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak of. Now, the book of Acts is a historical book, and by that I mean it covers about 40 or 50 years of the infant church. 
In fact, if you leave out the book of Revelation, it is, in a real sense, the only historical book in the New Testament. It moves, however, at a very rapid pace, and it tells us of what the Holy Spirit began to do through that group of disciples who were followers of Jesus Christ. You and I know, we've lived long enough to know, that we're living in a day of rapid change. I've lived in this community for over 55 years, and it's not unusual for me to hear a person say, you know, medicine has surely changed. Just this week, uh, a friend of mine was telling me about his brother who was having a hard time finding the appropriate treatment. Medicine has changed. Now, there may be a lot of reasons for that. In fact, I had a friend who was telling me that they called uh, one of the, the doctor's offices, and the office said, well, we're not seeing sick patients. We're only seeing well patients. And I thought to myself, that really is a change. I thought they saw sick patients. Medicine changes. Politics change. We are living in a day when we have a lot of changes in politics. Seems like they're more divisive than they ever were. It doesn't seem that we get much done in Washington. But as you've heard me say today, the hope of America is not in Washington. I believe it's in the church. The world events keep us on edge. We never know what's going to be heard from Russia or China or Ukraine. And I hope that you are praying as I am for the precious people who are living in a war zone in Ukraine. And there are people there who love Jesus and honor the things of God. And they're suffering because of the war that carries on. But when it comes to the church, though we are in a period of change in the church, music changes. The methods that the church uses change. But the message must never change. The message is that Christ died for our sins. The message is that on the third day he rose from the dead. And we who are the people of God must always insist that while the methods of the church can change, the message of the church must always be the same. When Billy Graham began to be very popular in Hundreds of thousands of people would come to his crusades. I was a young man in college, and, and in fact, he had a connection with the school where my wife and I attended college. And during that period of time, some of the more progressive or liberal pastors said, if Billy Graham is not careful, he will set the church back 150 years. Billy Graham responded, he says, my hope is that we will be set back 2,000 years. And what he was talking about is that church needs to go back to the time when it began and investigate the New Testament church as it is delineated and described in the book of Acts. And so for a period of a couple of weeks at least, I would like for us to, to talk about the church because in a real sense, as we live today and look at the book of Acts, we would think, well, they are old-fashioned. 
I wrote a sermon one time about old-fashioned faith. And there are a lot of things that are old-fashioned that are, are still very, very good. If you have a piece of furniture that has been fashioned by hand, it may be old-fashioned, but it is probably better than the furniture you could buy today. Uh, a lot of things are, 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 are very good, but they're old-fashioned. In fact, I got to thinking one day that maybe if my daughter called me one day and said, Dad, I have just made some homemade biscuits and homemade sausage gravy. Would you like to come? After I would get up off the floor, I would say, I will be there. Now, <laughs> that's old-fashioned, but it's still, still very good. If somebody invites you into their home and serves you old-fashioned ice cream, that's better than Ben and Jerry's. In other words, because something is old-fashioned doesn't mean it's not good. And I would say that from our viewpoint, the, the church of the book of Acts was old-fashioned. But it was what God used through the Holy Spirit to turn the world upside down, as it was saying. So, this morning, I want us to look briefly at the church in the book of Acts. Just two or three things that are true. First of all, let me give you a, an overview of the church. You remember that the church was fueled by the reality that the Christ who hung on the cross is alive. Now keep in mind, if you had been, if I had been a follower of Jesus, as we had seen him heal the sick, feed those who were hungry, multiplied the loaves and the fishes, the miracles that he did, even raising Lazarus from the dead, our hearts would have rejoiced that the Messiah has come and there would be within us a devotion to be a follower of Jesus Christ. But then came Black Friday. And this one who gave sight to the blind and raised the dead and fed the hungry was suspended between heaven and earth and in his native tongue, which was Aramaic, he cried out, My God, why have you forsaken me? And on the cross, Jesus became our sin bearer and he bore the sins of the whole world. Christ died for the ungodly. In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so our hearts would be troubled. Our dreams would be dashed upon the brokenness of the reality that the Christ who could perform miracles hung on the cross crying out to God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so some of the disciples began to bleed into the community. Some of them went back to their fishing. And yet on the third day, Christ by the power of God was raised from the dead. Now let me say here, without fear of contradiction, let me be as clear as I can be. Let there be no ambiguity in what I am about to say. Christians may not agree on everything and they can still be Christians, but Christians must believe that Christ was raised from the dead. 
For if he was not raised from the dead, then our faith is in vain. That's what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You see, what distinguishes the Christian faith from all other religions, and I would suggest to you that Christianity is not a religion. It is about a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so millions of people worship Buddha. Buddha is still in the grave. Millions of people worshiped uh, Allah, but Mohammed is still in the grave. There are people in our community who go by the teachings of Joseph Smith, but Joseph Smith is still in the grave. But Christ is alive, and that was what fueled the early church, that the one who hung on the cross, the one who was forsaken by the Father, the one who healed the sick, while the power of God was raised from the dead, and that fueled the church, that gave them enthusiasm. With all my heart, listen to what 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 7 says. Paul, in writing to the early church, the church of the book of Acts, he said this, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is in vain, and you're still in their sins. What is Paul saying? The very basis, the foundation, the very foundation of the church is that Christ was raised from the dead. Now, I've been preaching long enough to know that there are brothers and sisters in Christ that do not agree with everything that I may believe. We, we have a large ten of the people of God, but when it comes to the resurrection, we cannot compromise that. It was the very thing that fueled the early church. Paul says, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then our faith is in vain. And so not only was the early church fueled with the fire of enthusiasm because Christ is alive. Have you ever wondered why more people go to church on Easter than any other day of the year? Now, some people will say, yeah, they go because they want to show off their new clothes. Well, I, I don't believe that's true. I, I, I realized years ago as a young pastor that I believe that people go on Easter because we are celebrating the one who rose from the dead and that we want to believe that there's something after this life. Folks, life is hard. Did you know that? I mean, I know people who hurt. I know people who, who, who are facing the extremities of life. Life is not easy. Life hurts. Sometimes we go through the valley of the shadow of death. A young physician at Franklin Heights with several children just found out that his wife has a serious life-threatening form of cancer with eight children. Folks, life is not easy. And we want to believe that when we have ushered through this life, that there is something on the other side, that it is true that there is a heaven to gain and a hell to shun. We want to believe that when we take our last breath as followers of Christ to be absent from the body 
is to be present with the Lord. Amen? Therefore, the fuel that, the energy that fueled the New Testament church was the belief in the resurrection. But not only that, the early church knew of necessity that unity was absolutely important. In Acts 1.14, the Bible says, These all continued with one accord in prayer. Now, I want to just pause here. I want you to take a breath, and I want you to sit up straight and listen. <clears throat> the main weapon that the devil uses in the church, the atomic bomb that the devil has in the church is to divide the church. It is to cause disunity. I've uh, preached in a lot of churches in Franklin County, and I, you don't know which church I'm talking about, and even if you ask me after the surf, I, I'm not going to tell you. But right after I retired, I held a revival meeting in this church, and it was full about every night. It's not because I was a good preacher. Or it, it, well, anyway, it was full. That's all I'm going to say. I preached in that church a year ago, and they had 18 people. And the reason is because the devil divided the church. And somebody over here thought they were right, and somebody over here thought they were right, and they got to arguing, and they would not forgive, and they did not understand as Christians that we ought to be unified. Folks, the enemy is not in here. The enemy is out there in the world. And we need to love each other and pray for each other and be concerned about each other. And the devil will use as his atomic weapon to divide the church. And I hope and I pray that this good church is united. Doesn't mean that you always agree on everything. I've been married 61 years. My wife and I don't always agree. <laughs> I try to do everything she says, but sometimes I miss it. I'm joking. <clears throat> well, I'm not really. But anyway, <laughs> my point is that the devil... If he can, he will divide this church. And I've seen it happen again and again and again. Somebody said something hurt my feelings. Somebody taught, took the choke out of my classroom, and I don't have any chalk, preacher. I mean, it's crazy what people get upset over. Well, you know, I remember that Dr., I think it was W.A. Crispell, when he was a young preacher, he said he was preaching in this church, and they got to fighting over where to put the piano. And he said, I couldn't believe that they were fussing over where to put the piano. Folks, the devil will divide the church. No wonder in the book of Psalms it says, Oh, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. And what makes a marriage last? Unity what makes people work together on the job? Unity. It is in, uh, basic to getting the job done. And if we, the church of Jesus Christ, are going to do what God has called us to do, it is because 
we will, divide, we will decide to stay together even though we don't always agree. And so the two factors about the overview is that the resurrection fueled the early church and they were committed to staying together. They were in one accord. Didn't mean they saw eye to eye on everything, but yet they were together in what was important. And what is important is that we have a message that Christ died for us and that there are people who are lost and folks, every one of us, are going to spend someplace in eternity, heaven or hell. And I know some of you are wondering, do you really believe in hell? Yes, I do. But I want to say to you that this early church experienced persecution. Now, when you read the book of Acts, it's an exciting book. It moves at a fast pace. It covers 40 or 50 years. But throughout the book, and I don't know how many times I have read meticulously through the book of Acts, but what comes across, if you'll pay attention, is that this church, or this church was under persecution. In Acts chapter 4, the Bible says the apostles were warned not to preach in the name of Jesus. That's in chapter 4. In chapter 5, it says that they arrested the apostles and put them in a public prison. They began by saying, don't preach in Jesus' name. You can preach your new philosophy, but don't bring up the name Jesus. Folks, there's power in the name of Jesus. In fact, about, I don't know, maybe 1995, I was asked to open in prayer the General Assembly in Richmond. And I don't want you to misunderstand, but I, I thought, well, I, that's a good opportunity. And, and they asked me, and a lot of preachers don't get that chance, and so I'll go to Richmond and I'll open those folks up with a word of prayer but if they tell me I cannot pray in the name of Jesus I'm not going to do it because you see there's something about that name and the persecution began in Acts by telling them stop preaching in the name of Jesus and then it begins to multiply in chapter uh, 7 you remember Stephen is stoned to death he became the first martyr in chapter 8, it says this, and let me be clear, it says, a great persecution broke out against the church. By the time you get to chapter 8, a great persecution broke out against the church. And for the first 300 years of the church, and that goes beyond Acts, the church was persecuted. Diocletian was one of the emperors, and he hated the Christians. In other words, he took out of the Roman army every Christian was taken out of the Roman army. His name was Diocletian. And then when you get to a man called Constantine, he became a Christian, and a lot of the governmental-sponsored persecution stopped. What I'm trying to say to you today, folks, is even in the world in which we live today, in places like Nigeria, in places like Uganda, Christians are being persecuted. I am not making this up. 
but people who know these things tell us that every year, every year, a quarter of a million Christians are put to death simply because they are Christians. Do you know that, you remember a couple of weeks ago when I preached about things that I believe that are offensive to the heart of God? You remember two or three weeks ago that I said that I believe that marriage was between one man and one woman and not two men or two women. Now, I believe because that's what the Bible says. Did you know that if I had preached that in Canada, I could have been, not that I would have been, but I could have been charged with hate speech in Canada. I am not telling you what is untrue. It's true. Even today, even in our country, it seems that Christians are, are, are being persecuted verbally. And so I say to you that the church of the early days knew what persecution. That's the reason James says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith, the testing of your faith develops perseverance. I got to hurry on. Let me see what time it is. Oh, my goodness. I, um, the church was a, they knew about prayer. I hope you believe in prayer. I, I, I hope you have a prayer life that is different than just praying when somebody in your family gets sick. I hope there's a time in your life every day when you spend time with the living God, believing in prayer. And I have got to cut this short, but it has always interested to me that in the book of Luke, the disciples heard Jesus praying and and they came to him. These were the disciples. These were men <clears throat> who were followers of the way. And they said, Lord, would you teach us how to pray? Now, why that is interesting to me is, is because they didn't say, Lord, teach us to preach. And, and I think preaching is important. But they said, teach us to pray. And folks, if we're going to be the people of God, we must understand that, that prayer is not something that's important. Prayer is essential. If I'm going to be a man of God, I've got to have time spent with God. I, I need to be a man of prayer. You need to be a woman of prayer. God help us if we're so busy on TikTok or YouTube or whatever else is by the way, did y'all know that I bought a smartphone six months ago? I had a flip phone. It was old. It was old-fashioned. And I bought me a smartphone, and my daughter is still helping me learn how to operate it. What I'm trying to tell you is that we can spend a lot of time on telephone. I guarantee you, you spend more time on the telephone now through social media than we did when you just had to call people on the party line. Do you remember that? Some of you are too young. You don't remember. What I'm trying to say is, folks, 
We're not too busy to have time with God in prayer. The early church were people of prayer. Jesus says, my house shall be called what? A house of prayer. Oh, let us be people who know how to pray, not just when things are bad, but let's give time to God in prayer. One of the things that has blessed my life, you might want to write this down. In the Philippians 4, verse 6, here is something that has helped me. I, I'm, I'm concerned about what's happening in our nation. I'm concerned about what's happening in a lot of ways, the lawlessness and all the stuff that's happened. But I memorized Philippians 4, verse 6, 7, and 8. Here it is. In nothing be anxious but in everything by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God that passes all understanding will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. Folks, you need to write that down. You need to read it. You need to meditate on it. You need to reflect on it. You need to ruminate on it. Those verses are meant for the people of God. And with all the stuff that's happening in our world today, it's wonderful to go to a God who is sovereign, a God who is in control, and what may look like is out of control. I'm here to tell you, God's still in control. And finally, as I close, I know I'm going over, but I may not be here next week, and that preacher can help you out. <laughs> the final thing is, the church knew the power of the Spirit of God. In Acts 1.8, and in fact, he, t he says, in, in verse 4, he said to, to those early Christians, he said, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait. Now, the word wait could mean wait, but the word often wait means to pray. They who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. <clears throat> they shall walk and not faint. Oh, folks, we need to wait and have God's power, His Spirit in our lives. I need to hurry. I know that. And, and I'm not talking about some mystical thing, but don't, don't, don't you believe that in the pulpit today and in the church today, we need a, a new, fresh, indwelling Holy Spirit to work in our lives. I'm going to close with this illustration. I'm, I know I'm cutting it short. But um, there was this young preacher. He went to the ch a church. He's just a young preacher. Smelled like a new set of commentaries. He's so young. And uh, <clears throat> they had a godly deacon in that church. Godly man. And when he met with the deacons, they would pray. And that godly deacon would say, Oh, pastor, uh, Lord, give our pastor the unction of the Holy Spirit. And about every time they met, that godly deacon had not been inside of a college 
But he said, oh, Lord, give our pastor the unction of the Holy Spirit. Well, that young preacher just about had enough of that. He, so he decided to ask that uneducated, godly deacon. He said, brother, brother so-and-so, would you tell me what you mean by unction? That old godly deacon said, pastor, I may not be able to define it, but we know when you don't have it. And folks, what we need today, preachers who know the unction of the Holy Spirit. I had this lady come into my office one day, and she'd never been there before. She and her husband were about ready to get divorced. And I said, ma'am, where do you go to church? You know what she said to me? She said, well, me and my husband, we... We just never have been able to find a preacher who's with it. What do you think I'm said to that? I said, ma'am, I want you to know that you're talking to a preacher who's with it because I think I know something about holy God. I don't know what she meant, it's not with it. But we need men in the pulpit and the unction and power of the Holy Spirit. God help us. <clears throat> Father, I ask you today to help this good church have a desire to be old-fashioned in the message that we preach. Lord, I thank you for the privilege of standing here and sharing the Word of God. I pray, Lord, that you would help us. Lord, help me not to be preaching stuff that I'm not trying to live. God, I want to be, even in my old age, I want to know what it is to pray. I want to know what it is to feel the fullness of your Spirit. I thank you today, Lord, in Jesus Christ's name I pray. <clears throat> Amen. Our good uh, praise team is going to come and lead us in an invitational hymn. And <clears throat> if there is some reason you want to respond, maybe you're here today and you've never accepted Christ as your Savior, today would be a great day. Or maybe you're here and you need a fresh touch from the Lord and you want to come and speak to me, I'm here as we stand and sing.